0: Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Can you believe it? Chapter 19. And as you are turning there, let me give you just a sneak peek of where we are headed in the weeks to come. A lot of good stuff coming. Uh, First of all, this handsome guy right here, Rich Langton, will be preaching next week. And then we have the picnic on the park the week after, on July 18th, after which we'll resume our study in Revelation. And then... We will actually complete our study of Revelation on Sunday, September 5th. That's Labor Day weekend. And so just to kind of give you that target date of when we wrap this whole thing up, it'll be uh, just about a year that we were in the book of Revelation. And then on September 12th, I'm very excited to announce that we begin a brand new series entitled The Fullness of Life. The theme verse of which is um, John 10.10. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And we're going to address key questions like, what is a full life? How do we experience it? And how can we pass it on to others? And we will address key topics like abiding in Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit and the warfare of the Spirit. So I'm already really excited about that, and I hope you will be too as we press on to that. But today, we're still in Revelation, and I imagine that most of you are familiar with the famous piece of music known as the Hallelujah Chorus. Raise your hand if you know the Hallelujah Chorus. In our community, I think at Christmas time, we even have something called the Messiah Sing-Along. Is that right? Have you ever participated in the Messiah Sing-Along? Right. All right, some some, some faces I would say, yep, they're Messiah sing along, folks. And that piece contains that well known refrain, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Now you can tell I'm not a Messiah sing along guy, right? All right. But that hallelujah chorus, hallelujah, 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 um, those famous words actually come from our text today, Revelation chapter 19, verse 6, which says, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Now, that's King James, all right, which is okay. Um, But we're going to jump back into the ESV in just a moment. So, Revelation 19, 1 through 10 is heaven's hallelujah chorus. And that's what we're going to cover today. Now, now this blows my mind, okay? You want to have your mind blown this morning, walk with me here. Um, Think about the chronology for a minute. Handel wrote the Messiah in 1741. All right, so we're celebrating uh, Fourth of July today, Independence Day. This was even before that. Handel wrote the Messiah. 1,646 years before he wrote this, the Apostle John penned the words in Revelation in 95 AD. So, 95 AD, John writes these words from the vision that he saw. Handel wrote the words of the Messiah in 1741. But in reality, these words have yet to be sung. Am I right? Because they're future. They're yet to come. So when you sing the Hallelujah Chorus, we're singing a song that has not yet been sung. Right? So... Before we go any deeper into the rabbit hole, let's briefly review where we've been in our study, okay? The book of Revelation can be broken down into three main parts. Part one was chapter one, dealing with things past to the Apostle John. It had to do with his vision of the exalted Christ and what he saw, and it sets the tone for the book because it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Part two, chapters two and three were things present to the Apostle John as he wrote letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor to encourage them in the midst of persecution, but also to correct them because there were some wonky things going on in those churches even back then. And then part three, the longest section that we've been in, chapters 4 through 22, deal with things future, prophetic, things that have not yet happened, the consummation of the kingdom. And the purpose of this third part is to give believers the advanced history of how Jesus Christ, by means of judgment, becomes king with a view towards calling them to faithfulness and godliness, and so we know that this judgment comes after the church has been raptured, taken to heaven. And it is during the seven-year period known as the tribulation, where we have seen three waves of judgment. We've seen seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bulls, and mercifully. In our study, we've made it through all three judgments and the resulting destruction of something called Babylon. Now remember, Babylon refers to the entire worldwide political, economic, and religious kingdom of the Antichrist, which means that Babylon is both an ideology, and it is also a city which functions as the Antichrist's capital, and both are destroyed, as we have seen in chapter 17 and 18, which will lead to two very different responses, okay? We're starting this morning with two very different responses to the destruction of Babylon. First is the earthly response to the destruction, which is weeping, weeping. Look back at chapter 18, verse 9. It said, the kings of the earth will weep and wail over her. And then just a few verses later in chapter 18, the merchants weeping and mourning aloud over the destruction of Babylon. And then a few verses later, verse 19, and they, the sailors, they threw dust on their heads as they wept and they mourned. And so all of those who put their trust in the Antichrist and his world system of Babylon, check this out. We hear this phrase a lot about being on the wrong side of history, right? These are the folks on the wrong side of history, It is they who will see their lives crumble around them, and their response will appropriately be weeping and mourning. Don't be part of that group. All right, Don't be part of that group. But this is in contrast to the response of heaven. Very different response. In heaven, there's rejoicing over the destruction of Babylon. In fact, this heavenly response is even commanded. It's commanded in chapter 18, verse 20. It says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Her meaning Babylon. And so we have two very different reactions to the destruction of Babylon. On earth there is woe, there's grief, there's mourning, and in heaven there is worship. There's glory, and there's delight. And again, it's a a very sharp contrast And every single person will find themselves in one camp or the other. Our text today, Revelation 19, 1 through 10, is all about this heavenly response. It's all about the worship, the glory, the delight. As I said earlier, this is heaven's hallelujah chorus, yet to be sung, but witnessed and recorded by the Apostle John and given expression by the composer George Frederick Handel. And this heavenly hallelujah chorus is sung for three reasons. Number one, a first reason God has judged his enemies in verses one through four. Number two, God is reigning in verses five through six. And number three, the bride is ready in verses seven through ten. And this outline is very simple, but profound outline came from Warren Weersby. If you're ever looking for a, um, a commentator who takes difficult things and makes them simple, I love Warren Weersby. I would encourage you to check him out. So, let's take a moment to read the entirety of this text, and then we'll look at each one of these sections, all right? Um, Could you do this with me? Could you stand with me as we read the Word of God this morning? We don't always do that. We should probably do it more just out of respect and attention and acknowledging what it is that we are engaging right now. This is the Word of God, and it says in verse 1, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Can you see why we needed to stand for that this morning? Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, we ask for your help this morning. What a beautiful passage, so filled with praise and worship and a fresh vision of who you are, your majesty, your glory, your might. Open our hearts, our eyes, our ears, our minds to see you this morning. May your Holy Spirit speak to us, and may we respond in obedience, we pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. 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 All right, you may be seated. All right, Heaven's Hallelujah Chorus is sung for three reasons. The first reason is that God has judged his enemies. And so let's go back to verse 1, which begins, after this, which begs the question what? After what? Right? After what? And we always have to ask that question when we encounter these kinds of phrases. The answer is after the destruction of Babylon in chapters 17 and 18. After this refers to the destruction of Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. Now if we put our chart up briefly and take a quick look, uh, we find ourselves chronologically speaking at the red arrow between the seventh and final bull judgment and before the second advent of Christ. We're right in between the judgments and the coming of Christ, between the destruction of Babylon and the glorious appearing. So this phrase after this is really important. It's a timestamp that helps us in our study. It reflects a transition to a whole nother section of the book. And we're glad for that because the last section was really hard. And so it was given to the Apostle John by means of another vision, a fresh vision of what is to come. Well, what did John see? Or maybe more appropriately, in this case, what did he hear? Let's go back to verse 1 again where it says, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. The great multitude is most likely the angels of heaven. The angels of heaven who are very, very busy worshiping and doing whatever it is that God commands them to do. And so what is it that this great multitude of angels in heaven proclaim with their loud voice? They cry out again, Hallelujah. Hallelujah, which is really an interesting word. Um, I was really challenged and enriched in looking at this a little bit. It's actually an Old Testament Hebrew word that we've put into the Greek here in the New Testament. But it comes from two parts. Um, The first part is the Hebrew Hallel, which means praise, and Yah, which is short for Yahweh. So it literally means praise Yahweh. And there are 15 psalms. Remember last summer we did um, a study, a summer of soaking in the psalms. There are 15 psalms known as Hallel Psalms. Because they begin and or end with this word. Hallel Psalms that have this word hallelujah. And these Psalms tend to have three main themes. Now, now track with me here. The, the theme of the Hallel Psalms is deliverance, judgment, and God's sovereignty. Does that ring a bell? Are those not central themes here in the book of Revelation? Deliverance, judgment and God's sovereignty. And so the first time that hallelujah appears in scripture is actually in Psalm 104, 35, which says, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And here where it says, praise the Lord is hallelujah. And so what is the hallelujah for here in Psalm 104, verse 35? It's for judgment it's for judgment, resulting in the triumph of righteousness over wickedness. And so it is here as hallelujah is proclaimed in Revelation 19.1, just as it was back in Psalm 104, verse 35. The theme is judgment. And in Revelation 19, referring to the judgment and destruction of Babylon. Something else interesting about hallelujah. Revelation 19.1 is the first appearance of the word in the New Testament. Now, we're almost done with the New Testament, right? We've almost come to the end. And yet this is the first place that hallelujah appears in the New Testament. And here it appears in rapid fire succession in verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 6 here in chapter 19. It's as if hallelujah could not be proclaimed until this judgment had come, until Babylon was destroyed. And now that it has been, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Verse two goes on to give us three reasons for this hallelujah proclamation. It says, "For his judgments are true and just; for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants." So we have here three reasons, three additional reasons for praise. And the first reason for hallelujah praise is God's judgments are true and just. God's judgments are true and just. And and I don't know about you, but I've needed to be reminded of this repeatedly throughout the book of Revelation. And it seems like at just the right time, this truth appears. Because I'd probably much like you, I question at times, God, is all of this devastation really necessary? God, where do I see your goodness in all of this tragedy? But amidst all of the calamity and destruction of the earth, guess what? We are reminded that God's judgments are true and just. This is his character. And even when I don't understand always the the actions and what's going on, I can trust his character, which is true and just. True refers to the fact that God always does what he says. Just refers to the fact that God's judgments are based on right standards. And so we lament the fact that these qualities are in such short supply in our world today, don't we? But in contrast to that is our God... And so we proclaim hallelujah because he is true and just. And therefore, his judgments are what? True and just. Second reason for hallelujah praise is that he has judged the great prostitute. And of course, we know that that great prostitute is a reference to Babylon, the world system of Antichrist that led astray and ruined so many lives. Devastation to so many lives. That's not going to happen anymore. It's not going to happen anymore. Evil will be destroyed and righteousness will prevail. That is certainly reason to celebrate and praise. No more Babylon. No more evil. No more destruction of lives and ruining people with evil. And the third reason for praise given here in verse 2 is he has avenged the blood of his servants. The many, many, many who will be martyred for their faith during the tribulation Remember back in chapter 6, we refer to this periodically where we find martyrs in heaven who were martyred during the tribulation. They cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Well, the wait is over Now, the blood of the martyrs has been avenged with the destruction of Babylon. And the response of heaven is, of course, this emphatic hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. So this first section of our text is rounded out by verses 3 through 4, which says, Once more they cried out hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying amen, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now you know how in an orchestra, some of you have been a part of um, something like that, different sections come in at different times, right? Whether you got the woodwinds or the brass or the strings, the percussion, that's kind of what's happening here. We at first had the section of the great multitude of angels. That was their time to, to start the music, to start the singing. But now they're joined by a new section, the 24 elders, and also by then the four living creatures, different sections in this heavenly orchestra and this hallelujah worship service. And so the first reason that Heaven's Hallelujah Chorus is sung is because God has judged his enemies. Babylon is destroyed. Evil has been defeated. Number two, God is reigning in verses five and six. God is reigning. Verse five says, and from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God. It's a command, right? It's a command, praise our God. And it is in the present imperative, which means it literally says continually give praise. Continually, continually, everywhere, all the time, never stop. Keep on praising God in everything you do. For you see, worship is not merely something that we do here on Sundays, worship is a lifestyle. It's how we live. It's how we live in response to what Jesus has done for us. And so we, we celebrated with um, the cup, bread, and juice this morning. We celebrated the Lord's Supper. Our response to that now is a lifestyle of worship as a living sacrifice. It encompasses everything. And so here's a question in the middle of the sermon for application. If you were to ask the ten people who know you best to describe your lifestyle, what words would they use? I bet they'd use a lot of good words. Maybe driven. Maybe you work hard, nice, you're kind. Those are all good. But I think the word to strive for here is, oh, you know what? The word that best describes their lifestyle is worship. They worship God in everything that they do. Well, to whom is this command to praise our God given? Look at the second half of verse 5. It says, And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, small and great. This is a reference to believers. This is a reference to us, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, who have been forgiven of their sins and transformed by his grace. They've become new creations in him. And so, again, if we trace the progression of this Hallelujah worship service, it started with a multitude of angels, and then it brought in the, the, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and now believers join in the chorus. And that's significant. Listen carefully. Because it takes the singing of the hallelujah chorus to a whole nother level. Why? Because of 1 Peter 1:12. 1 First 1 Peter 1.12, speaking of our salvation, says these are things into which angels long to look. We've talked about this before, but the fact of the matter is, angels haven't experienced what we've experienced, have they? They can't experience what we experience. Salvation is a uniquely human experience. And so, angels, they, they, they watch and they see what God has done and our response to it, but in terms of understanding it experientially, they can't. And so, they can sing about salvation from an observer perspective, but we sing about salvation experientially based on what God has done for us. And so, angels can't sing like we sing. I'm sure their singing is impressive. They are angels after all, right? Majestic and glorious and powerful. But church, again, their singing is nothing like ours because ours is the singing of the redeemed. And I hope that challenges you when you consider how it is that you sing on Sunday morning, in the car, in the shower, wherever it is that you are singing God's praises, may it be in such a way that the angels, may the angels never watch the way we sing and say, do they really believe it? Do they really believe what they're singing? Angels haven't experienced what we've experienced, so they can't sing like we sing. And so for that reason, the Hallelujah Chorus here in Revelation 19 goes to a whole nother level. And we see in, here in verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. This is loud, raucous worship, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And there they are, those words from the Hallelujah Chorus. As God's people join with the angels in heaven to praise Him, they proclaim hallelujah. Why? Because the Lord our God Almighty, He reigns. Now, this would have gotten the attention of John's original audience, those seven churches of Asia Minor. Why? Because. Roman Emperor Domitian. Remember we talked about him early in our study. He was the guy who was the Roman Emperor at the time of this writing in 95 AD. Um, He referred to himself as Lord and God. And he acted like it. Except, in contrast to our God, he was anything but true and just. He was an evil, tyrannical ruler who persecuted Christians unto death. And so these words of the Hallelujah Chorus... It would have been so reassuring to those first century readers who were enduring great persecution to hear those words, to know that they were in the hands of one greater than Domitian. Domitian can claim to be Lord God, all he wants to, but here the Apostle John writes to them and says, no, there is one greater. There is one greater. These persecuted believers, they're in the hands of the Almighty. In Greek, Pantocrator. I love saying that. I just I do. But um, And by definition, is there anyone greater than the Almighty? No, because they're the Almighty, right? And so this is the Almighty who is also true and just. He will see his children through whatever difficulties they must face. It was true in the first century. It's true for us today. We are in the strong and capable hands of the all mighty and that is reason for singing hallelujah hallelujah so heaven's hallelujah chorus sung for three reasons god has judged his enemies god is reigning and now are you ready for this the bride is ready and if you haven't yet taken a peek at beth thompson's work this week on her display Her artistic expression of what this passage is all about, make sure you do so. But she puts such a labor of love into that, and it is so, so impressive. Now, these first two reasons for the Hallelujah Chorus are really good, aren't they? Really good. But this third one, I think it's spectacular, and I think it's beautiful. Look with me at verse 7. It says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Three questions we need to ask about this verse. Who is the bride? Who is the groom? And when and where does this marriage take place? And in order to answer these three questions, we we need to know something about the stages of a near eastern world. Wedding. Okay, so here's the deal. The first stage is what we would call contract or selection. Contract or selection. It doesn't sound very romantic, does it? The truth is that marriages in that culture were predominantly arranged by the parents. Parents of the bride and groom would negotiate a marriage contract. And I realize that our gut, gut response to that is what? Man, that's that's absurd, right? How archaic. I can just hear my daughter right now saying, No, Mom and Dad, I don't want you in charge of my marriage and who I'm going to marry. How unromantic it is. And I'm sure glad that we've outgrown that terrible system, right? But then I would ask you this question. How well is our current system working? (laughs) How well is serial dating and um, just all of the promiscuity and divorce, and how well is that going for us? And so maybe they actually knew something that we don't know. But at any rate, step one, the first stage was contract and selection and arranged marriage, which led to number two, which is betrothal. Betrothal, which is similar to what we call engagement, except that betrothal was legally binding. So the couple was legally considered to be married when the parents got together, the contract was signed, even though the marriage ceremony had yet to take place and the marriage had yet to be consummated. So the only way to get out of the marriage or the betrothal at this point was by divorce. And you'll remember that that was the situation that Joseph found himself in, right? When he found Mary says he's pregnant, and he's wondering what to do. And the only way to get out at that point was divorce. Because even though they hadn't yet had the marriage ceremony, it had not yet been consummated, they were considered husband and wife. Well, the next phase after betrothal was the actual marriage or presentation. And oh, this is where I get so excited. All right, check this out. See if this sounds familiar to you, okay? The groom accompanied by his friends, would come to the bride's house to bring her back to the new home that he had prepared for her. You with me? It was at this prepared home where the marriage would take place. And so when Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. We'll come back to that in a moment. After the marriage and presentation comes the marriage feast, which was one gigantic party. How many of you went to uh, the Christian Chadzaka wedding? All right. It was a great day. We had cake and ice cream in Temple Hills Gym. All right. Um, and that was fantastic. But this is different. Okay. This is different. This was a gigantic party that would go on for days and days and days and days and days. As a matter of fact, the length of the party was often determined by the wealth of the hosting family. File that away for a bit later too. Okay. So with that background, we now again read verse 7 which says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Let's put the pieces together and answer that first question. Who is the bride? And the answer is the church. All who came to faith in Christ from Pentecost to the rapture. That's the church. All right? The church is taken to heaven at the rapture. That's the church. How do I know the bride is the church? Well, because there are other passages of Scripture that say so. In 2 Corinthians 11.2, the Apostle Paul says, "...for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ." And then, of course, the, the kind of flagship passage, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, making that correlation, and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so scripture makes it abundantly clear that the bride of Christ is the church. All who came to know Christ from Pentecost to the rapture. And the groom then, of course, is Jesus. Which leads to the third question, when and where does this marriage take place? And the when, I believe, is the rapture. And the where is heaven. Again, we go back to John chapter 14, verse 3, when Jesus is telling his followers to say, I am going to prepare a place for you that I can come and take you to be with me where I am. That's referring to this marriage. So if we look at our chart, the red arrow shows us when the wedding takes place. It takes place at the rapture, which means that we are currently in, what stage are we in right now as the church? We're in the betrothal stage, right? We're in the betrothal stage. We're waiting for our groom to come, for us, the bride, to take us to be with him. The place is heaven. But what comes after the wedding? The marriage feast, that big party that goes on and on depending on the wealth of the host family. How wealthy is the host of this marriage? He owns everything, right? So we can probably anticipate this party's going to last for a while. So I hope you don't have to go to work on Monday because this party's going to go on and on and on. So different lines of thinking about this. I believe that the party begins in heaven when the marriage happens, but I believe that then spills over into that 1,000-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ here on earth, which only makes sense, right, if it depends upon the wealth of those hosting the party Let's have a thousand-year party celebrating this marriage, right? What is the bride wearing? Verse 8. It says, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Many of you have been brides. How much attention did you give to your wedding dress? <laughs> Um, I read this week that the average cost of a wedding dress in 2021 is between $1,089 and $1,429. That's the average. The wedding dress is a big, big deal. Is it not? Right? You got to get it right. Um, I remember um, for, for Christy, I remember she bought a particular wedding dress and then decided she didn't like it. And so she took it to Sherry Dalstrom, who basically reconstructed it and made it something entirely different and new. And so the wedding dress, you give a lot of thought to it. It has to be just right. Lots of preparation. And so it is, church, to be with the bride of Christ. The wedding gown matters. We are to be giving today crazy, crazy amounts of attention to our wedding apparel, sparing no expense And here, that gown for the bride of Christ, the church, is identified as what? The righteous deeds of the saints. Our good works. That's what the bride wears. That's what it is, the gown that enhances her beauty. And now, church, let's be clear. We're not saved by our good works, right? But we are saved for good works, Again, this is that opportunity that we have to spend lots and lots of time giving attention to that wedding gown. Our our participation in those good works represents the preparation of our wedding gown, anticipating the coming of the groom, Jesus Christ, who could come when? Any moment. Any moment. Church, may I ask you, what is the present condition of your wedding gown? If Jesus were to return today, are you ready? Are you ready? And you may say, you know what, I, 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 I prayed that prayer, you know, I put my trust in Jesus, and that's great, that's fantastic. But what is the condition of your wedding gown? Again, we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Is your gown fit for a pure bride? Well, at the marriage feast, there are in fact some guests. This is interesting to me. Look at verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So who are those who are invited to the marriage supper? It's not the church, is it? Why? Because we're the bride. All right, we're not the guests. We're the bride. No, those who are invited to the marriage supper, these are guests of the bridegroom. I believe that they include the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints. All right, these are not the church, which is comprised by those from Pentecost to the rapture. Now, here's the deal. In the eternal state, when we're in the presence of Jesus forever and ever and ever in the, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth, we're all going to be one big happy family, all the same, all who belong to Jesus. But at this point in God's program, there are some distinctions. We all come to Christ the same way, but because we come in different times, there are some distinctions between the bride and the bride and those others who are part of the kingdom, those who are here called, those who are invited to the marriage supper. And so we find ourselves again here in this betrothal stage, awaiting our groom to come and take us to the place he has prepared for us, after which the marriage feast will last for more than a thousand years, which is awesome. Which is awesome. And pretty overwhelming, and that was John's experience with this vision. He just finally reached a point. Where he was like, oh, I can't take any more. And he says in verse 10, then I fell down at his feet and to worship him, the angel. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You know, Every once in a while, John has this experience. He's going to do it again. In uh, just a little while. Um, He just gets overwhelmed. He falls on his face and he starts worshiping whatever's in front of him. Um, But the angel is quick to say, hey, no, 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 no. We only worship God. And you know what? Can I just pause here for a second and say, um, church, we can do that. And I think evangelical culture has done that a lot. So Chad, what do you mean by that? Um, We have fallen in the past decades into some severe celebrity worship in our evangelical culture, when it comes to certain teachers, certain churches. And I believe that we we almost, by our devotion to certain churches, certain teachers, certain celebrities in Christendom, um, it's almost this experience here where we, we fall down and unknowingly we give allegiance and we worship, and that just doesn't end well. We don't worship teachers. We don't worship churches. We don't worship ministries. We don't worship angels. We worship God. Now, think about this. If if the angel God created is so glorious that it caused John to fall down in worship, what must that mean for the God who created the angel? Wow. Really, really, really glorious. Well, let's conclude today by asking that important question. How should we then live? And I believe that some wonderful points of application come to us today from that last part of verse one. So let's go all the way back to verse one, very last part of it. It says, Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now think through the weightiness of this declaration and its implications for us today. First of all, salvation belongs to our God. That's a simple statement. But think about how profound that is. Salvation belongs to our God. He sent his son Jesus as the way, the truth, the life. And truly no one comes to the Father except through Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. Salvation belongs only to our God. He is the author of it. He has made provision for it and you have been invited to it. There is no other way by which we can be saved salvation belongs to our God. Have you responded to God's gracious call for you to be saved from your sins? Next, it says glory belongs to our God. Glory, that's a hard word to define. The Hebrew word for glory literally means heavy or weighty. Um, Some of you were back in the 70s. How many of you had a leisure suit? Back in the 70s, Jerry Level. I would have paid good money to see Jerry Level. and You had two of them? All right. You may remember, I, I can just picture now. I, actually, Mac is what comes to my mind when I picture this Mac in a leisure suit. And was, somebody would say something significant back in the 70s, and somebody else would respond by saying, Oh, that's really heavy. You know, that's, that's heavy. You know? And I think that's a good description of what glory is. Glory is heavy, it's significant. When we say that glory belongs to our God, it means that he alone is heavy, weighty, significant. He is ultimate significance. And therefore, our lives are only ultimately significant when, when they find their meaning in him. So many people on the quest and search for significance today. And they're looking for it in all kinds of different places and they're not finding it. I really believe, you know, compassionately speaking, I think that's why so many are struggling even with transgenderism and with all kinds of, uh, of different... They're, they're looking, they're searching, they're trying to find significance and where they fit and where they belong. And glory belongs to our God. Weightiness only belongs to God. Ultimate significance is found in him alone. And then thirdly, Power belongs to our God. And I get so excited about this. I find such encouragement for you see if power belongs to our God, the omnipotent one, and I belong to God, guess what? God's word tells me that his power is constantly present to help me in every single one of life's challenges. That same power that created the universe, that raised Jesus from the dead, that same power is at work in us. And through us, power belongs to our God. And so we join with the angels, with the 24 elders, with the four living creatures, all believers, past, present, and future, proclaiming the words of Handel's Messiah, the hallelujah chorus, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? God, we love you today. We marvel at your greatness, your might, your holiness. And God, we thank you that you, our Lord and God, are not like Domitian, but you are true and you are just. And so even when we don't understand the circumstances, what's going on around us, we find you to be completely trustworthy. And we are so grateful that salvation belongs to you. Glory belongs to you. Power belongs to you, and we belong to you. We worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.